Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 6. If you haven't heard me say it yet, I love John chapter 6. The title of my message this morning is From Death to Life. And I want you to see three things. I want you to see that there are two indispensable means that God uses to bring us from death to life. And I want you to see that there are three glorious results of God bringing us from death to life. And then finally, one essential confession that we confess resulting from God bringing us from death to life. I'm especially interested in the confession, so I want to give it to you at the beginning, and then we'll see if we can get there together by the end. It is this, that God rules, he reigns, he triumphs, our God is sovereign. We'll read a good bit more in a few minutes, but for now, Look at verse 63. The spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to your word this morning And we acknowledge that apart from your spirit, I cannot preach. And apart from your spirit, none of us can hear and understand your word. So we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that the spirit would make these words that were spoken so long ago by the Lord Jesus to be living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword among us and in us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So for those of you who um, aren't with us on Sunday evening, it's usually Sunday evening when I preach, occasionally. And I've been preaching through the book of John. And this is now the eighth, my eighth sermon, eight, in John chapter six. So I can remember... When I was finishing up John chapter 5, Russ came up to me and he said, Mick, John 6 is next. John 6 is serious stuff. (laughs) You're going to take your time on John 6. And um, he reminds me that often that I have to take my time on John 6. Well, Russ isn't here this morning, so (laughs) I'm going to pick up the pace a little, and I'm going to attempt to finish... John 6 this morning. So for the last time, would you think with me through the chapter as a whole? John chapter 6. Remember there are three parts, the sign, the storm, and the sermon. John 6 begins with the miracle, very important miracle. I know it's important because it's the only miracle besides the resurrection that's recorded in all four Gospels. The, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. 5,000 men plus women and children. So Jesus took a lad's lunch of five loaves and two fish and fed 5,000 plus, maybe 10, 15,000 people. Who can do that? Only our sovereign God can do that. One of the, there's a lot in that first miracle that's amazing that shows the sovereignty of God but one of the things that catches my attention a lot of times is the fact that it was late in the evening and when Jesus asked the disciples what do we have they said well there's a lad here who has his lunch how is it possible that it's late in the evening and that boy did not eat his lunch yet that's God's sovereign it's lunch is still there miraculously and God and Jesus feeds them all with that lunch well Jesus did this to show his glory that he's God that he's a sovereign God and they missed it they missed the glory 
All they got was the food, the grub. They missed the glory and got the grub. Much like the Israelites in the Old Testament, when God sent the manna in the wilderness for 40 years, every, well, six days a week for 40 years, the manna came and all they got was food to eat with their mouths. But God intended it for them to see him, that he is faithful, that his word can be trusted, that he alone is their sovereign God. You might remember at the end of those 40 years when Moses is looking back at the 40 years, he reminds them and he says that God humbled you and let you hunger and he fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you to know that man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. It wasn't just about the physical bread, it was about the spiritual relationship with God to show them that God is trustworthy because God is sovereign. Now, it's not only the crowd that missed the glory, it was the disciples that missed the glory. So for the disciples, the 12, Jesus sends next a storm. So as the evening goes on, after the people have been fed, they want to crown him king, this great multitude, because obviously who would want a king who would give them food, right? So he dismisses the crowd, he sends the disciples in the boat to cross back over the Sea of Galilee to the uh, western side over to Capernaum. Well, he stays there alone, and that night he sends the storm. And the disciples are in the middle of the storm, and Jesus comes walking to them on the storm, walking on the waves. He gets in the boat, the sea is stilled, and they immediately are at Capernaum. There. Who could do that? Our sovereign God. He's showing them his glory. That's the storm. The third part of the chapter is the sermon. Okay, since the disciples missed the point of the feeding of the 5,000 and the crowd, the multitude has missed the point, Jesus now is going to tell it to them. You remember that the crowd the next morning who had been fed the night before, they come back to that same place. They can't find Jesus uh, because he's left now. He's gone over to Capernaum. So they get in boats, go to the other side. They find Jesus finally in Capernaum in the synagogue. And they say to him, when did you get here? How did you get here? And he just says to them, you seek me not because you saw the sign, because you understood the sign. You seek me because you ate the loaves and you were filled. And so he's not going to feed them now. That's what they want. They want more physical food. But he's going to tell them what the spiritual significance was of that miracle. Like, and so this sermon is going to be in the form of a discourse that he has with this crowd. So he's first going to talk to the crowd as a whole. Then he's going to talk to a part of the crowd that's called the Jews. That's John's term for the leaders of the Jews. Those would be scribes, Pharisees, priests, whatever. He'll talk to them. Then he's going to talk to a group of disciples, followers, people who would I call would-be disciples. They would follow Jesus if they could have Jesus on their terms. And then at the very end, he's going to talk to the twelve. Like a lot of good sermons, this has three points. Not my sermon, his sermon. His sermon is good. Three points. The three gifts of the Father. Our Heavenly Father is a giving God. Three gifts that he covers in the sermon. The first is the gift of God the Father to God the Son. The gift of God the Father to God the Son of a people that he gave him an eternity past in the eternal covenant of redemption. You weren't there, you had nothing to do with it, all right? God chose you, God gave you to Jesus. We saw that in verse 37. Jesus said, all that the Father, what? Gives me. Okay, so there's the gift, the gift from God the Father to God the Son gives me. He says, all that God gives me will come to me. 
that's an extremely foundational and important verse because from that gift of God the Father to God the Son of a people flows all of our redemption. As a matter of fact, the reason for the second gift, the reason for the third gift is because of that gift from God the Father to God the Son. It's the wellspring, it's the fountainhead of all redemption. So because God gives these people to Jesus, the second gift is God the Father's gift to people of Jesus. Because what kind of people are they? They're sinners, right? These people who are given to Jesus are sinners. They need redeemed. And so Jesus is sent by God. He ascends from heaven, is incarnate, lives a perfect life, and he will die so that he can be the bread of life to those people. So that he is the source of life, the giver of life. He is the sustainer of life. He's the very definition of life because knowing him is true eternal life. So we saw uh, that in verse 32 first, remember? He's talking to the crowd here. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, Moses has not given you bread from heaven, but my father gives, there's the word give, all right? This is a gift from the father. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. And then he identifies himself as that true bread in verse 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and who believes in me will never thirst. And what does he do as the bread of life? Verse 51, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And also the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He has come to give his life, his body given on the cross, his blood shed, that we might have life, his people. That's the second gift. The third gift that God the Father's gift to those people in time, okay, of bringing them to faith in Christ. Okay, so the problem, well, we'll see the problem if we go to verse 44, is that no one can come, no one can believe in me and Jesus unless the Father draws him. No one can. You get that? No one. There's no human ability. The word there is dunamis, no power, no ability. We cannot come. No one, not most everyone, not everybody but you. No one can come because... Why? We read it in our scripture reading earlier, right? In Ephesians. And you were what? Dead. We need life, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and once you once walked according to the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? The devil, right? The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We're dead, we're blind. We need life. That's God's gift in time to us. So what is it that'll bring us to faith in Christ when we were dead like that? Well, our verse 44 tells us it's not from us, right? The only answer is the Father draws us, God must, as we said before, rend the heavens and come down and act. Salvation is a sovereign act of God, period. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying when he uses the word, the Father must draw us. Because that word draw, um, we looked at it last time, I believe, was uh, a word that literally means to drag, right? 
you, we won't look at it again, but if sometime you look up in John 21, 4 to 6, you'll, uh, you'll see where Jesus told that his disciples have been fishing all night, caught nothing. Jesus said to them, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. And so they did. And when they did, it says that they cast in their nets and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. They were not able to drag it in, to haul it in, to draw it in. And that's how we come. We come, we believe, because the Father draws us, this sovereign act of God. The fish don't swim up to boat and say, I want to be yours. So you can put these three gifts together, right? And see how they work together. The first gift is the gift of the Father to Jesus of a people in eternity past, then the gift of the, Father to, of, of the Father to people of Jesus who comes and dies to redeem us, to pay in full our salvation in full to redeem us. And this third gift is the gift of the Father to, uh, to us of conversion, of bringing us from death to life to fulfill the promise to Jesus in eternity past and to apply the redemption that Christ paid for on the cross. They all work together. So this drawing is not from us. No one can come unless the Father does it. It's gracious, it's unaided, it's sovereign, it's unfailing, and it's permanent. But we asked last time, what does that mean for us? We're not fish. What does it mean that God draws us? What does that mean? So we looked at verse 45, it is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. That explains the previous verse. What does it mean that God draws us? It means that we are taught by him. Everyone who has heard and learned comes to the Father. So this teaching, this divine teaching from our divine professors like no other professor can ever do because he takes the word. Well, let me read this. So that verse that's quoted from the Old Testament is from Isaiah, Isaiah 54, 3, that says, all your children shall be taught by the Lord and great will be their, the peace of your children. But Jesus says in that verse that he's referring to the prophets, plural. So he's not referring just to that one verse, but there are other verses that put light on this. And so Isaiah 31, 33 to 34 is a very important verse that tells us about this teaching. It says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So this teaching is not just what other teachers do of putting out information, but God actually takes the law, the word of God, and put it in our hearts. It's not there, out there just on tablets of stone, on parchment, but now it's in our hearts. Our hearts have been made new, They're al it's alive, and we, for the first time, can hear, that is, we can understand the Word of God. We can see the truth of the Word of God, spiritual reality, so that we, it says in that verse, learn. They will all learn from God, all those who the Father draws. That means, from that verse, to learn is to know God not know facts about God, not just know doctrine, not just history, but know him personally. It's talking about a personal relationship, a scriptural relationship where we love his word, a personal relationship where we enjoy his presence, and a covenant relationship where we rest in his covenant. Those are the people who come, who believe. All right, that's all review. Okay, that's where we left off. The question I want to ask this morning is what means does the Father use to draw us, to teach us, 
to bring us to faith in Jesus, to give us life? What means does he use? Now, before we read more, I want to remind you that Jesus, when he talks about coming, is talking about believing. Okay, look back with me again at verse 35. When Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. Okay, he's saying that because he's talking about the figure of the manna. He's using that as a, a type, okay? He, the manna, the, the Old Testament type, he's the fulfillment of that, Jesus himself, okay? Those who come, when you come to manna, to bread, what do you do? You eat it, right? You come to it and you eat it, okay? But then, if you're talking about actually coming to Jesus, what do you do? He who comes to me, he who believes in me, will never thirst. Okay, do you see? He's talking about the same thing. He's not talking about two things, coming and eating, or believing. He's talking about coming and eating, that's the same as believing. Okay, and through this whole chapter, you'll see that he keeps coming back to that figure the bread and eating, meaning believe. So if you take away the figure and just talking literally, you can see, for example, in verse 47, he just says it outright. All right, no way to misunderstand this one, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, he who what? Believes has eternal life. So when Jesus starts talking in verse 51 about, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And also the bread which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. When he starts eat, talking about eating the flesh, he's not talking about cannibalism. He talks about blood. He's not talking about drinking literal blood. He's talking about what? Believing. All right, when you come to bread, you eat, you come and eat. You come to Jesus, you come and you believe. Now, we're going to read uh, verses starting in verse 52 for a little bit. And you need to remember that. Okay, Jesus is going to be using terms that to a Jew were very offensive. He's doing that on purpose. It's not, he didn't forget, right? Well, this is going to be offensive to them. He knew, all right? I mean, for a Jew to even eat Blood and meat was anathema. You, you can't even do that, much less drink blood. Okay, so he's using some language that to these Jews are going to be very offensive. I want you to think about why is he doing that. Okay. Verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, and he, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. So just put yourself in the place. If you were a Jew standing there listening to that, and you weren't making the connection, okay, we know that these Jews had the problem of taking everything literally, right? Nicodemus, when Jesus talked about being born again, he's thinking about getting to your mother's womb again and somehow being born again. When Jesus talks to the woman at the well about living water, she's thinking about something you can put in the bucket and drink. And when he starts talking about this bread, they're just thinking all on the physical level, nothing spiritual. So you can imagine they're thinking that way. They're totally offended. These things, verse 59 says, he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when 
They heard this said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? So why did Jesus do that? Why didn't he just say, I'm talking about believing in me, people. It's because he's exposing not just their unbelief, but he's exposing their inability to believe. He could say, you need to believe in me just straight out like he did that we read. You know, he who comes to me who believes has eternal life. He can use figures, he can do whatever, and they are what? Dead, spiritually blind, they can't see it. So when we talk about what means does God use to bring us to faith in Christ, to bring us from death to life, what he's clearly saying is that whatever those means are, it's not me, it's not you. We have no spiritual comprehension apart from what God does in our lives. There's no human intelligence, no human acceptability, no human merit, no human will, no human good works, no human heritage, nothing. So he's explaining to us part of our verse, verse 63, the spirit is the one who gives life, the flesh profits how much? Zero, nothing, nada. We have nothing to offer. Jesus says in verse 61 to them, because they were grumbling, Jesus knowing that his disciples, this is not the 12, this is the would-be disciples now, that they were grumbling at this, says, does this cause you to stumble? What if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Okay, remember, part of the discussion has been, how can this Jesus say that he's ascended from heaven? We know his mom and his dad. How can he say he's come down from heaven to be the bread of life? And Jesus says, well, what about if you see the actual proof? If you actually see me go back to heaven, wouldn't that be proof that what I'm saying is true, that I ascended from heaven. And in the context, I believe what he's saying is there, that wouldn't even make a difference. Seeing with your physical eyes, proof would not bring them from life, from death to life. It wouldn't do anything. They would still have zero to add to their conversion, nothing. All right, so we've cleared that up. We're out. The means, whatever means God used to bring us to Christ, we're out. So I think last time we talked about, think about the day that you were converted. For me, it was a, a Friday night and I was at a Bible study I didn't want to be at. and. We woke up that morning, whatever morning it was, you woke up a sinner, dead, unable to see, unable to offer anything toward your salvation. So what did God do? He, as we read in Isaiah, he rent the heavens and he came down and acted with these two means in verse 63. I'll read verse 63 again and see if you can see the two means that God uses. The spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. See the two means? Very clear. The first means is God, the Holy Spirit. What does it mean that God intervenes in our lives to bring us to faith in Christ? It means that he sent the Holy Spirit to do the work of raising us from spiritual death to spiritual life. You remember in John 3, Jesus said to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, they're spiritually dead, no sight. Cannot see the kingdom of heaven, must be born again. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the, what? Spirit. It's the Spirit who gives us life, the Spirit who brings us from death to life. What's the second one? Do you see it? Jesus says, in the last half of the verse, the words that I've spoken to you are spirit and are life. God uses those two means, the spirit and the word of God. What does Paul say in Romans 10, 17? So faith comes by what? Hearing, hearing and hearing what? The word of Christ. Those are the two means that God uses. Those two means... I say are indispensable, I, not just me, but the Bible says are indispensable and they are inseparable. They're inseparable meaning God always uses those two. He doesn't say, oh, I think I'll save somebody without the spirit today. Just the word, nope. Or I'll save somebody with the word without the spirit. No, those two always have to go together. They are inseparable. God always uses the two, and they are indispensable. There's no salvation apart from the Spirit using the Word of God to bring us from life to death. In that verse, by the way, the Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit in our life. That second spirit there, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit. <clears throat> I take as still the Holy Spirit that he's talking about. That the words that I have spoken to you are inspired by the Holy Spirit, and these words give life because they are inspired by the Spirit. <clears throat> so I take both spirits in that, word, that verse as referring to the Holy Spirit because the two means that God uses are the Spirit and the Word to give us spiritual life. So that's what happened to you. That's what happened to me when we believed. That night when I believed, that Friday night back in 1968, that was a long time ago, God the Father gave the Holy Spirit, you who used the word of God to bring me from death to life. And you can remember your conversion, hopefully, but I had gone to church at that point all my life. I grew up going you know, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday, everything. And that night for the first time, I heard meaning I understood the gospel because the Spirit gave me life. The Spirit gave me faith to believe. As we read earlier in our scripture reading, we're saved by grace, right? Not of works. Okay, so those are the two means of Spirit and the Word. How about the three glorious results? Well, we've been talking about them already, but let's name them here. Clearly, it says in that verse, the Spirit is the one who gives what? Life. Okay. The first glorious result is we have life where we were dead, where we could not see spiritual truth. We could not have a relationship with God. We were deaf. We couldn't understand. We couldn't hear the word of God. Where We couldn't respond. We now have life, eternal life, a living relationship with the bread of life who truly satisfies our soul. Secondly, result is, and I think it's clear to see this because sometimes we think that faith is, comes from us, but what we read in Ephesians 2 is faith is a gift, all right? Faith comes as a result of this life that the Spirit gives us. It's he who gives us the gift of faith. So, verse 63, the Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Why did he say that? Some of you don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe, and it was and he who was who would betray him. 
Now he was saying this for this reason, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it's granted, okay, there's our gift, that's the same word for gift, granted to him from the Father. So this reason he said that to them in verse 34, there's some of you do not believe, is because he wants them to know that the reason they don't believe is because the Spirit hasn't given them life and faith. So where does the faith come from? They don't have faith because the Spirit hasn't given to them. If you have faith, it's because it's from the Spirit, graciously given in regeneration. For this reason I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted by the Father. He gives Judas as an example, right? He knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So what explains Judas? What explains Judas's unbelief? What explains Judas's betrayal? It's very clear in 65 because it wasn't granted to him from the Father. In other words, the sovereign act of God. Sovereign act of God. When Jesus was talking about drinking his blood and eating his body, that was a hard saying for them. Remember, in verse 60, this is hard. It's a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? You know, they didn't, they didn't want to hear it. But when Jesus makes it clear that salvation is a total sovereign act of God, it's even a harder statement for them. Because look at what happens after, as in verse 66, as a result of this, many disciples went away and were not walking with him anymore. They were willing to have Jesus as a food provider, right? But they were not willing to have him reign over them as their sovereign God. They were, in effect, saying, you know, we're autonomous. We can come and we can go whenever we want. We can come to Jesus. We can leave Jesus. It's up to us. So they walked away. They weren't willing to have him as sovereign. So Jesus turns to his 12, verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go? Peter, Simon Peter spoke for them and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. It seems to me like when Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go, suggests that they thought about it. They, they looked around and realized there was nowhere else to go. Well, let's try to answer that question. Where else could you go? To whom would you go? To where would you go? Well, you could go to just total denial Right? You could just say, there's no God, you know, no salvation, or God's just going to save everybody, or sin isn't a big deal. Or you could go to compromise and say, I do have something to contribute to my salvation. Yeah, some good works, my will, you know, I make the decisive move. Peter's right. There's no place else to go. Jesus is the sovereign God. Four times in this chapter, four times, you know, he uses the word I am 
Ego a me, remember? He's referring back to Moses in the burning bush when God appeared to him, spoke to him from the burning bush and told him to go back to Egypt and take my people out of Egypt. Moses said, who shall I tell him sent me? And God said from the burning bush, I am who I am. You tell them that I am has sent me, sent you. Four times in this chapter, Jesus says, I am. I am that God. I am Yahweh. In him and in him alone is salvation. Because God is absolutely sovereign. He planned our salvation when he gave us to Jesus. He provided for our salvation through the cross work of Jesus. And he accomplishes, he applies that salvation to us through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. It's all Him. It's because of the Father's gift to the Son that we are His. It's because of the Father's gift to us of Jesus on the cross that our sins have been paid for. And it's because of the Father's gift of the Spirit and His Word that we have life and union with Jesus. Union's an important word. That's another blessing of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Remember I said there were three results, resurrection or life, saving faith. The third one is this union. If you look at verse 56, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, what? Abides in me and I in him. Reminds of John 15, right? I'm the, I'm the vine, you're the branches. We remain, we abide in him, we are uh, connected, we have union with Christ. The Spirit does that so that all of the benefits of the cross work of Christ is ours. So I could spend the rest of my life in John 6, but here it is in one sentence. I am his and he is mine because of the sovereign will and work of God. So do you see why I love John 6? But I needed help on the last two verses. I, I, I struggle with those last two verses. It's like, <laughs> if, if Jesus, John had just finished chapter 6, Right there with Peter's confession, that's great. Verse 70 and 71, what, what's he doing? Jesus said to them, to the twelve, did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? And he was speaking of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve and was going to betray him. What's that? What kind of ending is that? I mean, this chapter is that so many glorious truths, you know, and Judas, the devil, betrayal. It could almost turn the chapter dark. I mean, think about it. The chapter started with this glorious miracle, five, 10, 15,000 people, the miracle happening right in their hands, right? Bread, they could eat until they were satisfied. Fish, until they were satisfied. They saw it and they wanted to make him king. And then the very next day, the crowd turns away in unbelief the scribes and the Pharisees, they hate him and want to kill him. These would-be disciples turn away from him. And there's 12 left, and one of them is a devil. Looks like the devil's winning. Doesn't look like God's in control. Looks like the devil is winning. 
Doesn't it feel a lot like your life a lot of the time? Life is full of trials that are too big for us, storms that we can't weather, questions we can't answer, problems we can't understand or handle, circumstances that don't appear to say God's winning, that God's triumphant. It looks like the world's winning. It looks like the devil's winning. And I think that's exactly why God, or John, the Holy Spirit, gave us chapter 6 to say, no, the devil's not winning. God has a devil right where he wants him. God has Judas. He chose him right where he wants him. And Judas and the devil are going to do exactly according to God's plan. God is in control. No matter what it looks like around us, God's in control. Remember, if you fast forward to the Last Supper when Jesus is around the table with the disciples eating the Passover, and Jesus said to them, one of you is going to betray me. And they were sorrowful and they began to say one after the other, is it I, Lord? Is it I? And Jesus said, the one who dips with me is the one who will betray me. And this is what Jesus said. The Son of Man goes as it is what? Written. In other words, what? Judas is going to do what the devil is going to inspire Judas to do. God had already planned a long time ago. He even wrote it down in the Old Testament. The Son of Man goes just as it is written, but woe to him who does it. Reminds me a little bit of Acts 2 when Peter was preaching after at Pentecost, and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words of Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You killed and crucified at the hands of lawless men. Right? Definite plan, the foreknowledge of God, God had it all planned out. The devil is not in control. Jesus is. God knows. He has already planned what he's going to do, and he knows, and he has already planned what he is going to do with every trial of yours. I want you to look back at the beginning of the chapter when Jesus told the disciples, you know, to, how are we going to feed this crowd? Where are we going to buy bread? Verse 5, where are we going to, should we buy enough bread so these people may eat? Look at verse 6. And this he was saying to test them, for he himself knew what he was going to do. He didn't say, it doesn't say he, he hoped what would happen, you know. He, you know, maybe I'm going to be able to feed all these people, you know. He, he knew exactly what he was going to do. He knew exactly what he's going to do with Peter, with uh, Judas. He knows exactly what he's doing with the devil. They're in his hands. He's got the devil by the scruff of the neck, and he will do only what he wills, what God wills. God knows he has already determined what he's going to do with every trial, every storm that he sends your way. He knows what he's doing with every problem that seems to have no solution. And he knows what he's doing with every question that you don't have an answer to. They are all in his sovereign hand, every one. He's the God who said through Isaiah, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel will stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. 
That's our sovereign God. So we can either question the sovereignty of God because it's a hard saying, and it is. And if we do that, if we just keep questioning it, we'll be like tossed by every storm and trial that comes our way. Or we can stand on the solid ground of Scripture that reveals over and over and over again that God is sovereign. He's in control. So no matter what circumstances are that surround us, no matter what it looks like, no matter if it looks like the devil and the world are winning, we confess this one essential confession. God rules. He reigns. He triumphs. He is sovereign. at Peter's confession again one last time in verse 69. <clears throat> verse 69. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Who's the Holy One of God? When Moses, remember, was tending sheep on a mountain, he saw a bush that was in flames, but it wasn't consumed, so he turned aside to see. And as he got close to the bush that was burning, God spoke to him and he said, take off your shoes, your sandals, because the ground that you're standing on is holy ground. That's our God. That's Yahweh, that's ego a me, I am. That's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He reigns supreme, no rivals. God alone is sovereign. That's the message of John 6. Our salvation, our sanctification, every day of our lives, all the way from now to glory, it's all God, it's all grace, it's all his sufficient will and work. Therefore, it's all to his glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you that though we were dead in our sins, that you, being rich in mercy and loved us so much, that you made us alive together with Christ by giving us the Spirit and the Word. It's all your grace that you intervened and drawed us, drew us to yourself, and I pray that you would never let us forget what you've done for us and made a day never pass that we don't get into the word and feed on the living bread and find satisfaction for our souls. And let us be reminded that we belong to the sovereign God. In his name, the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.